Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome. We are just getting up and going here on our Twitter spaces, so please uh, bear with us. Uh, everybody's just logging on and getting hooked in. I see we're still missing one person, so please stay with us. Uh, we're just starting up. Um, so my name is Reed Standish. Uh, I'm a correspondent with Radio Free Europe, and I'm your host today. So uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening uh, to wherever you are in the world. Um, today, we're going to be looking at the unfolding situation in Kazakhstan and the aftermath of an unprecedented crisis in the Central Asian country. Uh, protests that first broke out over fuel prices in Kazakhstan's west quickly spread across the country as Kazakhs, hungry for change, took to the streets in nationwide protests. But the unrest quickly took on new dimensions, with a turn towards violent attacks and riots in what many eyewitnesses describe as a result of groups hijacking what began as peaceful protests. Elite infighting also hangs over the series of events that we're still deciphering, uh, with it increasingly looking like Kazakhstan's shadowy elite politics, which normally takes place behind closed doors, played out on the streets. Uh, we've seen a purge of many high-ranking figures in the country, and President Takayev even described the crisis as part of a coup attempt. Karim Masimov, an influential figure who served as the head of the country's domestic intelligence agency, was also arrested on treason charges and accused of trying to seize power. The crisis also took on a big geopolitical element with an intervention by the Russian-led CSTO military alliance, effectively allowing the Kremlin to prop up President Takayev, which could have far-reaching implications for the country into the future. With all that in mind, we're going to be focusing on what's next for Kazakhstan after a week that changed the country forever. Following such a pivotal series of shocks and changes, what does the future have in store for the country, its people, and its politics? With me today to dig into all of that is a great group of guests. I'm joined by Rashan Jandayeva. She's a Kazakh-born researcher at George Washington University. I'm also joined by Alimana Janbukanova, a Kazakh-born expert on Central Asian politics, who joins us from Tbilisi. And of course, I'm also joined by Radio Free Europe senior correspondent and resident Central Asia watcher, Bruce Panier, who's joining us from Prague. Um, Mukhtar Sengirbai from Radio Free Europe's Kazakh service was going to join us, but he's out sick today. Um, and to all everybody listening, we'll be opening things up to questions too. So uh, please keep anything uh, in mind for later and we're looking forward to hearing what's on your mind. Uh, so uh, Rashan, I I'd like to start with you. Um, I'm curious about how you think, uh, you know, this will alter Kazakhstan's domestic politics. You know, in many ways, an outpouring on this scale, um, you know, this type of popular resentment with the government, it's something that's been brewing for years and years. Um, but I'm curious where you think that this leads us. On one hand, you know, we still have a country that doesn't really have an organized or cohesive opposition. Um, there isn't the same type of political culture. You know, 30 years of autocratic rule hasn't really left uh, very fertile ground to build something on. Um, and then plus we have all these convulsions, you know, in the, in the top level uh, elite world of politics. So, um, you know, what, how do you see this moment and where do you see Kazakhstan going? Um, hi, great to be with you all. Um, well, on the one hand, we can clearly see for the first time from President Tokayev open criticism of Nazarbayev's regime and his family. We could also see the preach of um, Nazarbayev's loyalists, as you've mentioned, and Tokayev clearly got a lot of public support out of that. Um, a lot of people were clearly um, sort of fed up with the regime um, and the um, 
sort of the socioeconomic structures that the regime perpetuated that benefit the elites and um, loyalists um, surrounding Nazarbayev. Um, so he definitely got a lot of support for that. But on the other hand, we sort of remain doubtful about the systemic reforms. Um, the new cabinet has 11 um, people that previously uh, served under the former uh, prime minister. Um, we also saw the previous minister of energy who got heavily criticized. Um, we saw him becoming the president's ad advisor now. Um, also, a lot of activists and um, regional journalists are under um, severe attacks. Three of them um, were actually arrested and um, others got heavily interrogated. Um, so we, the pr President Tokayev also saw, also announced a lot of um, socioeconomic sort of reforms, uh, but we clearly see no indication of political reforms. Um, including um, like the political demands of the protesters, like um, selection, um, the direct elections of Akims, um, as well as uh, sort of opening up the political sphere for um, real opposition. Um, so I would I would say one of the possibilities is definitely a more consolidated autocratic power again, um, around uh, President Tokayev. Right. I mean, it does seem that, um, you know, given especially the type of, you know, the reaction from the government, um, you know, that th this wasn't going to be, you know, the way that using force on the streets, which is what, uh, you know, a lot of the reports that are coming out now of, you know, quelling these protests that was used, you know, that is a, a very, an even more autocratic direction, I think, that maybe surprised even some people who were, you know, pretty clear eyed about the nature of the Kazakh government. So, I mean, given, I mean, the government is clearly trying to show that it's taken protesters' demands. Uh, you know, in mind. But as you said, you know, a lot of these seem to be fairly cosmetic changes. So, I mean, is there, can there be room for an opposition? I mean, how do you see things, you know, sort of materializing in the coming, uh, you know, month? Um, to be completely honest, I remain sort of doubtful about any real opposition. Um, I think there might be some cosmetic changes in the uh, in the parliament with um, sort of systemic opposition and them being promoted. Uh, but with um, the actual opposition and the like protest movements, including um, the sort of more, um, more sort of progressive political um, movements like Oyan Kazakhstan or the one of Jean Balat Mamai, um, I don't see them, you know, taking space. Um, well, then what about, I mean, if there isn't really much room for opposition politics, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of upheaval happening, you know, at the top of the pyramid, so to speak, within the Kazakh political world. Um, you know, we don't know all the details of what exactly happened, but it seemed that there was a pretty serious split up top. Um, Takayev has managed to, to come out on top, you know, largely, I think, due to, uh, you know, Russian support. Um so, I mean, how, how do you see that shaking up, you know, the country? Is that you know, a different direction? Is this just kind of rebranding a bit of what we saw before? You know, how might this new Takayev era differ from, you know, what we had of, you know, nearly 30 years of the Nazarbayev era? Um, yeah, as with many things, it remains an open question. It's pretty unclear. On the one hand, he clearly criticized uh, Nazarbayev and we could see sort of a bit 
shift from um, what he what we like saw as him being a um, complete loyalist to the regime. Um, on the other hand, he was still um, sort of uh, brought up in that political culture. Um, so it's it's not clear um, if anything like serious is gonna happen um, in terms of political reforms. Right, right. So I mean, obviously we're still we're still figuring a lot out here, but it doesn't seem like you're you're too overly optimistic about um, you know that this could maybe lead to to positive change. I mean, is that is that a safe kind of characterization? You know, I'm curious. You know, yourself as a as a Kazakh who also is a you know an expert on these politics. I mean, how do you how do you feel personally just about the the last couple of weeks and and what it means for the future of the country? Um, on the one hand, I. I would love to be optimistic, but I I try to remain um, I, I try to remain realist in um, in the current political settings. Um, obviously, this this didn't happen. This like outburst of um, protests didn't happen in one night, and we saw how the regime has been neglecting people's grievances for decades, um, and. I don't think that the changes will happen in one night, um, but um, what we definitely see, like on the on the part of um, like people in Kazakhstan, we see the rise of um, political civil um, culture, which is a positive indicator, I think. Um, but the regime still holds um, a lot of power. Right, right. If you're just joining us now, uh, I'm uh, Reid Standish, uh, Radio Fear correspondent. Um, we're having a discussion here, um, you know, about uh, the the last uh, few weeks that have have changed Kazakhstan and what lies ahead. Um, I'm I'm joined by Bruce Panier, who I think has just figured out his technical difficulties and and is finally with us. Um, also with uh, Rashan Jandayeva and uh, Almana. Uh, Alimana Zhanukunova, uh, um, and uh, yeah, we're talking about what is next. So, Bruce, now that you you are here, um, I would like to, to to turn things over to you. Um, you know, I, I'm especially curious to get your thoughts, Bruce, on on sort of how this affects you know the the foreign policy of Kazakhstan, its relationship with its neighbors, and I guess especially its relationship with two of its very big neighbors, Russia and China. Um, you know, I think Kazakhstan has always been interesting in that it's it's prided itself on what it's called a multi-vector foreign policy. You know, essentially this idea of of balancing uh, between different uh, big powers. Um, and while it's always been friendly with Russia, I'd say it's it's by no means been a, a client state of the Kremlin. But obviously, Takayev turned to Russia in the form of the CSTO for help, um, and it does appear that you know a lot of his that the fact that he 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 came out on top still is is largely thanks to to Moscow's help. So I'm curious, you know, where where does that leave Kazakh foreign policy moving forward? How does that change the direction of the country? Uh, can you hear us, Bruce? Um, your mic is not coming through. Um, okay, I think Bruce is having some microphone issues. So maybe what we'll do is we'll change it up and hopefully we can come back to Bruce with this question uh, in a second. Um, Alimana, maybe let's let's turn it over to you. Um, maybe, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious again to turn back to the human toll of all of this crisis. 
Um, you know, we talked about how this process was actually kicked off by economic inequality, which, you know, as uh, Rashan just just pointed out quite rightly, you know, this this isn't really going away. So, um, you know, but at the same time, Kazakhstan went through some irreversible changes. So, um, I mean, how how do you see that, you know, shaping the lives of, of, of ordinary people, you know, whether they say we're out on the streets hoping for change or not? I mean, obviously, Kazakhstan went through something so, so, so profound. So, so how does that change, uh, change the direction of the country? Hello. Um, thank you so much for the invitation. It's an honor to speak here, although the topic of our discussion is a bitter one, of course, for us, especially. Um, me and like Rashan and I are, we are the generation of Kazakh people that are now experiencing this crisis for the first time, the crisis of that scale. And it's quite a lot. And I think for sure it's going to be a trauma for the whole of Kazakhstan and for the nation. It can be in the future. It can influence us to be more political, like to be more political about things, because before, like from my parents' generation, I can see that we're, they were more uh, like politics was happening somewhere in Astana, in Nursultan, in Akorda, but they were so far away from it. But our generation is more exposed and we can see that uh, in this protest, too. But maybe even with, with what we can see from this protest, it will also influence uh, next generations to be more political. But also it's important to note that uh, although it's a huge trauma and we can see a lot of lives lost and it's a bit a lot of confusion about what actually happened and what's going to happen as we're just discussing it now, it's I think it's also important to notice that it probably will influence a lot and impact a lot Kazakh nation building from a grassroots perspective, not from the government perspective. Because people show their solidarity during the protest, and it's not something we have seen before. It's as you know, it started in Janauzin, which is in the western part of Kazakhstan, and it has a it has a sad story that happened in 2011. But it didn't reach the scale that it is reaching now, and now people are again protesting in Janauzin. But you can see people's solidarity in different parts of Kazakhstan, even for example in a city. Like Petropavsk, it, it's in the north of Kazakhstan, where I'm originally from, which is a very quiet place and people don't really protest and they're not interested in politics. But even there, you could see people going out to the streets and demanding some changes. So I think this is, although it's a trauma, it's a national trauma, it will impact young people to be more political, to be more involved. They would also would now want to know what is happening behind the closed door they will want to know what's going to happen to the country so i think it can be it can be we can see the future of kazakhstan as like they're negative they they can be negative aspects because of what happened uh in the beginning of this year but we also might see long-term positive impact because we can see that people are more interested in politics and they want to keep their government accountable well that's the that i was going to ask you know where does that leave, uh, you know, people's relationship with the government? I mean, Takayev, uh, you know, since taking over, you know, they called it uh, launching a, a listening state in, in that, not the sense that they were listening on everybody, but in that they, they were, you know, had an ear open to people's demands, um, you know, and that this wasn't a government that was trying to ignore everybody. But obviously after, you know, using force to, to put down protests, and then also, I think, launching this this narrative about it being, you know, foreign-backed terrorists, 20,000 foreign-backed terrorists. 
Um, I think also a few explanations that that strain credulity a bit, you know, about, I think he said something about, you know, the reason there aren't any, you know, bodies or evidence of this is because everything was taken from the, the morgue. And that's why you can't prove that this was foreign back terrorists. So, I mean, how if the, the trust has been eroded so deeply with, you know, people's relationship with the government, which I think granted was never very strong to begin with. So, I mean, you know, you're saying people are more awake, they're, they're paying more attention, they're going to be perhaps more involved. But I mean, it, it seems that we're, we're still at this, this impasse is still there. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, I think it now it all depends on Tokayev and how he will handle maybe the next, next three, two years. Uh, it depends on him and what kind of path he chooses to 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 get the country out of this crisis but i think at this point people are just tired of what happened because it's such a shock we never had um crises like that before so many people died almaty is completely devastated um so i think people just want this to be over and they kind of want to be over with a strong power with a strong government but after what he does and what kind of reform reforms he decides on will obviously impact the relationship uh, with Tokayev and the government. In the beginning of the protest, we could clearly see that people were crushing down Nazarbayev's uh, statues. People were crushing down this the science was Nazarbayev name. So they wanted, um, they, 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 they were saying Shalket, which means uh, all men go away, right? So they were directly aiming their criticism and discontent towards Nazarbayev specifically and not Tokayev. But it also depends because if, if Tokayev will uh, continue doing what um, he's doing right now, because uh, uh, the cabinet, as Roshan has noted, didn't really change. We can only see one woman uh, among the ministers. If we will continue in this way and he will just say to people what they're, uh, they wanted to hear, uh, and you can see that from his statement, he was saying a lot of things about Nazarbayev and kind of like letting the steam out. But not, but if it doesn't, if it won't be followed with actual changes, then the, the uh, maybe people will say something different, not Shalket um, to Nazarbayev, but to Tokayev as well, too. So it really depends to where it, it, it will go in the next maybe couple of day, couple of uh, years. Right, right. If you're if you're just joining us, uh, we're talking about uh, you know the 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 last two very pivotal weeks in Kazakhstan and where things are going uh, in the future. Um, and also, um, we're going to be opening things up to questions later on. So if you have anything on your mind and that you want to ask, please stick around, um, and we can answer all of that later. Um, Bruce, can you hear me? Is your microphone working? I think that means a no. Um, okay, maybe that's the that's too bad. Hopefully, we can figure this out um, and we can bring Bruce on later. But maybe you know, uh, Raushan, maybe I can turn this back over to you and maybe ask you the question that um, you know I was going to ask Bruce. You know, um, we were just talking about this relationship that you know Takayev has, you know, with the government. Um, you know, maybe some legitimacy questions going forward. Um, but one of the things that I think shook out of of this crisis that we just saw is, is the fact that you know. Russia, through the CSCO, intervened to uh, support him and threw its weight behind him and essentially prop him up. So, I mean, in, in your mind, do you do you think it's safe to say that Tokayev owes Moscow uh, something for their support? And I mean, how do you see that, you know, affecting the 
the country's foreign policy, maybe it's domestic policies. I'm curious how you see that that play out. And then also maybe also how how does it change the perception of of him as a president in the eyes of, of many Kazakhs? Um a lot of people when um when he basically brought the CSTO to Kazakhstan, a lot of the public sentiment was heavily negative and a lot of people saw it as you know, basically foreign interference um, in domestic affairs. The um, a lot of people in um, on the streets, um, also abroad, um, went out and protested uh, against those um, interventions because they were basically seen as um, <laughs> as illegitimate, uh, since um, the protest in in a lot of ways were um, were as a, like where as a response to a failure um, of government to regulate domestic grievances. Um, and basically, um, that means that a lot of people see uh, Tokayev now as basically uh, being supported by, uh, by Russia and specifically by Putin, um, which obviously impacts him um, in a negative way. Um, yeah, that's sort of to answer it shortly. Okay, okay. Um, Alima, I know you wanted to to jump in here, so I'm curious about um, you know, especially how you see this you know affecting the country's foreign policy. I think Kazakhstan's always been this unique spot. You know, it's had this tried to balance between Russia, between China, between the U.S. and 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 Europe as well. I mean, does that kind of eliminate that as a possibility? And yeah, I'm I'm curious about just how you see the fallout from from this you know, really unexpected and unprecedented, you know, Russian move. So when we first heard about the CSTO um, coming in Kazakhstan, there was a lot of negative, um, negative emotions about it among just ordinary Kazakh people. Uh, that's from my personal experience that I've heard from my peers. And I think it's a lot of questions. It also raises a lot of questions regarding what will Kazakhstan own to Russia, right? Because it's a it's a huge favor. Uh, it's helping. But basically, we know that Putin is probably the one who took who made this decision and took the army in, into Kazakhstan to help out Tokayev to stay in power. Uh, so there's a lot of questions behind it. People have different theories, especially considering the big uh, Russian minority in the northern Kazakhstan. And always uh, Russia has the history of reminding to Kazakhstan that there are a lot of people who are ethnic Russians and uh, hold uh, Russian passports. From time to time, we hear this kind of claims. There were there were also a lot of Russian politicians who were saying, oh, maybe this CSU army should stay permanently and it can be a base for fighting with terrorism, but also to protect Russian-speaking population in Kazakhstan. So there's a lot of thoughts about it, but it's also not good because Kazakhstan, as a government, they don't provide with clear information of what is happening and why this uh, clear information, what it, why they uh, invited them and what, what are the terms, what are they, what, what's the agreement. So it causes a lot of myths, which is not good for national security of Kazakhstan. Um, but what's important to highlight, I think, that these armies were mainly protecting the strategical buildings. Like, for example, part of Russia, uh, Russian troops were protecting Baikonur, which is actually Russian. Uh, Russian Russia uh, is now renting and she's like kind of responsible for Baikonur, which is a tr strategic uh, place for them. So 
we don't really know because also from what uh, from the Putin's history, we know that he doesn't like when the government is changed. Um, not legitimately, so to say. So he likes to keep his. He likes to keep the people who he was previously in relationship with, and that's Tokayev, because he's a legitimate president, according to what he sees it, right? Because he was Nazarbayev. Nazarbayev uh, sort of like let him to be a president. It's Nazarbayev approved person. So if something would happen and Tokayev wouldn't be able to handle the situation in a correct sort of way that he could keep the power in a legitimate sort of, as Putin would see it, way, then it would be a problem for Putin because he never likes that and he would do everything he could to protect that and keep it that way. So maybe we don't know if Kazakhstan owes anything to Russia, if there'd be any consequences. People were saying maybe it, it will influence hugely economically in who Kazakhstan trades with in terms of the oil and gas. But it might not be. And it's hard to tell if there was an agreement before, if Kazakhstan just rightly used its right as a member of CSTO. But I guess we probably will see it more um, in next year. Perhaps we can see from uh, the, this different uh, perspective, from, from this different perspective of like, the trade and uh, internal political issues. And if you remember, actually, just before the protest, uh, Tokayev ordered all the signs to be only in Kazakh and not in Russian. And there was a lot of discussion in inside Russia, inside the Russian Federation, that they didn't like that. So if something will change in that direction towards favoring Russian and Russian world and Russian influence, then we can maybe say that... Uh, there was a debt and it was a big favor. Uh, if, if you're just joining us, uh, this is a Ready for Europe Twitter Spaces conversation. We're talking about uh, you know, the last two weeks, the crisis in Kazakhstan and uh, you know what lies ahead. Um, so, I mean, you raised, you raised a pretty interesting point there about, you know, I think especially, I was actually going to ask you this before you said it, but about, uh, you know, the kind of, you know, I think there's a, a strong current of nationalism in Kazakhstan that's been growing, uh, you know, over the last 30 years of, you know, uh, separating from the Soviet Union. So, um, you know, obviously, as you said, you know, okay, Russia has a history, you know, there, there's been comments that have raised before, there's obviously an ethnic Russian uh, population in Kazakhstan, which sometimes gets brought up in, you know, in the Duma in, in, in Moscow by some, some politicians there who like to beat that drum. So, um, you know, Rashan, I am, I'm curious, um, you know, where is there is there a space still for that Kazakh identity? I mean, how, how do you see it fitting into the, the, the politics and everything that we've gone through? Um, you know, is there things are going to be cut out? Is there going to be space carved out more for for Russia in Kazakhstan? I mean, what do you see happening? Um, well, if we look at the current protests, I don't think there was um, anything based on the um, nationalist question. Um, a lot of the grievances were socioeconomic, despite the fact that a lot of people in Russia try to portray it, um, a lot of government officials in Russia try to portray it as a nationalist um, conflict and justify it as 
um, as like something against Russian speakers. In fact, um, a lot of people in Kazakhstan are Russian speakers, um, and some of them also know um, Kazakh as well. Um, so it's 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 really hard to tell because um, the regime for the last thirty years tried to portray um, Kazakhstanis as like as this um, Kazakh speaking population versus Russian speaking population. But in fact, we see um, in like, during this protest, we uh, could see a lot of solidarity um, between um, between different protest groups. Um, and obviously, um, the, the pro- protests were not heterogeneous um, and the demands of people um, in Zhanaozian are completely different from the ones we um, not completely different, but are pretty different from the ones we could see in Almaty. Um, so I I would be more hopeful about I I can be more hopeful about the um, sort of the rise of um, national identity, um, the one that is more inclusive, I guess. But it definitely depends on um, also on how. Um, Russia and like specifically state media would um, interpret the situation as well. Right, right. I mean, obviously, there's still a lot uh, up in the air here. Um, you know, I think for, for everybody listening, uh, I think we're going to open the floor up to, to questions pretty soon. So maybe in the next five minutes. So if there's something that you want to ask one of us, uh, I think there's a there's a function uh, on the Twitter app, you can raise your hand, and then uh, later we can we can turn it over to you and you can ask. Um, but for the time being, so please keep your questions in mind. Raise your hand if there's something that you want to ask. Um, all right, I'm going to open up to I don't know to any of you who want to jump in with this one. I mean, we've talked a lot about Russia and the Russia angle. Um, you know, in, in I, I I have a particular uh, maybe interest in in following China and what my beat is, which is you know covering China across Eurasia. Um, so, um, you know, I'm curious about, you know, the, the China side of this, which is obviously perhaps less, less significant and influential than Russia has been, but obviously it's a, it's a huge player, tens of billions of dollars invested in the country, Belt and Road was launched out of Kazakhstan. Um, you know, Bruce, maybe we can see if your microphone is working and you can, you can take this question. How, uh, can you answer me, Bruce? It does not look like it. Okay, unfortunately, Bruce is still having technical issues. Um, Rashan, uh, Alimana, I don't know which one of you is, is uh, wants to jump in there, but I'm curious to talk about China with you guys and how you see that, especially their role, which I think has sat around on the sidelines a little bit, let Russia take the lead, but um, you know, obviously has followed with quite a lot of uh, you know support for Takayev. We see a lot of echoing these same talking points about uh, you know an attempted color revolution, uh, terrorism. Um, you know, I'm curious about how how China you think is is going to be seen in the future, and you know what kind of space China is going to have to operate, especially given uh, you know Russia's big uh, big uh, intervention on on the the part of Takayev. Um, I guess I can jump in. Um, I would just say that <laughs> uh, I'll be pretty straightforward. Um, I'm I know, I don't really study relationship China Kazakhstan, but just from my general knowledge, I know that. China doesn't like to get intervene, and especially if it's an internal conflict, because they're saying that we're just about uh, the commercial side of it and economic side of it, but not about the uh, politics, right? So I guess for them, what's most important is the stability. So Kazakhstan doesn't get radicalized. Kazakhstan has a stable government. 
with whom they can negotiate, they can trade, and they can work with. So Tokayev is that person. Tokayev uh, has that government. So I, what they will do is just support that, and they won't get involved. I don't really, I'm not an expert on that, and I don't really study that, but just from my general perspective is that they will just abstain um, from in getting involved in and uh, influencing that the situation, this crisis. Um, Roshan, I mean, what about yourself? I mean, or actually, sorry, Bruce, can you can you hear us? Can you join in? Maybe, yeah, no. It looks like it's still not coming through, unfortunately. Um, so, Roshan, maybe let's turn it over to you. And and also for everybody listening, if you have questions, please uh, send them over. I think we're we'll probably after Roshan answers this last question, I think we'll open up to. Uh, to what's on your what's on your mind. So Rashawn, I'm I'm just maybe one last thing here. I mean to hit the the China drum a little bit more. So I'm 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 just sort of curious, especially in mind with I think of you know the removal of someone like Masimov, uh, you know I think played quite a large role in in fostering relations between Kazakhstan and China over the last 30 years, and the fact that he was one of the he's the person who it seems that uh, you know is being pegged as you know trying to launch this uh, attempted coup d'état. Um, I mean, do you see that, you know, damaging that relationship in any way, making it harder for China to have inroads with, with Kazakh elites, which I think always have had this, you know, longstanding relationship with Russia? Does that, does that make it harder for China to, to build influence in the country, you think? Um, yes and no. Um, on the one hand, um, despite the fact that the elites are now basically in a way are indebted to Russia and we would probably see a closer cooperation with Russia. We still we still see that President Tokayev um, tried to pacify foreign investors um, and assure that Kazakhstan is a good place for investment. Um, Kazakhstan and China, China invest a lot of um, money and a lot of investments in Kazakhstan and Kazakhstan will need it to um, sort of develop economically, whether um, Kazakhstan wants it or not. Um, again, as Alibana, I'm not an expert on foreign policy. I'm not an expert on um, Chinese-Kazakhstan relationship. What I also um, can tell um, is, is that the public sentiment um, is pretty um, anti-Chinese um, in general in Kazakhstan, especially with the ongoing crisis in Xinjiang. Um, and um, also in 2016, there were huge protests against um, sort of selling land to China, which also then um, sort of re revolved around um, political demands as well. Um, so the, it, the future remains uncertain, I would say. Right. I mean, most definitely. I'd say that's true. Um, all right. Well, thank you, guys. Um, I think we're going to turn it over and field our first question now. Um, I believe this is coming from Ajaz Ahmad. Um, if you can uh, introduce yourself, I think you should be elevated to a speaker now here on the on the platform. Um, if you can please introduce yourself and let us know what your question is. Okay, it doesn't seem to be, he doesn't seem to be popping up. Okay. Am so, I audible? I'm not sure what to do there. Um, okay, here we are. All right, um, Ajaz, can you please uh, introduce yourself and let us know what your question is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My name is Ajaz. 
I am working in Observer Research Foundation. I have done my PhD and Masters on Greater Central Asia. PhD on Chinese minorities, especially in Xinjiang. So I have been watching this area from 2010 and I have visited the area, especially Kazakhstan in 2015-16. I have two questions. One is to you. What is the role of Chinese minorities who were incarnated or sent to detention campus in from 2017 to two, till recent time? What is the role of that thing that if there is role of these incarnations that led to the protests in Xinjiang? For example, in 2019, there were protests against the detentions of Kazakhs and Uyghurs in Almighty and more than 50 were 50 people were detained on that time and the rising anti-Chinese sentiments in Central Asia, whole of Central Asia. Is it true that that was also a binding cause for these recent protests because we see the subsidy of gas was given up but that became the immediate cause. But to my understanding, as I have written a lot, especially how BRI works in Central Asia and how anti-Chinese sentiments are high in Central Asia, if those were the causes which led to this thing, that protest is secondly, what will be the impact of coming of CSTO to Kazakhstan on the present president's image? Whether people will, people are happier or they will become much more unhappy with the present president. Because it is against the country's sovereignty and people are not feeling good when it comes. Right, to right. Yeah. These are the two questions. Okay. All right. Thanks. Um, so, I mean, on the China one, actually, I mean, I, I can I can jump in here um, and, and at least answer that and then maybe open it up to everyone. Um, and maybe either Rashan, Bruce, if his mic works, or Alimana can, can feel that second part about the CSTO impact. I mean, in terms of, you know, ethnic Kazakhs from China who live in Kazakhstan, um, you know, I, something I followed up on personally in, in, in my job uh, in the, as this was going on to see what was happening. Um, you know, for the most part, um, I don't think that many people were, you know, as you're saying, people have been protesting, you know, for years in various forms. Um, over the, you know, the treatment of their relatives over in Xinjiang and, and just the wider, you know, camp system that China is running there. Um, but um, no, I mean, I don't, I don't really see, you know, these, this, what happened in the last couple of weeks in Kazakhstan is particularly linked. Um, and also, I mean, one thing that I was curious about is, you know, what would happen to a lot of these, uh, you know, people who had claimed asylum in Kazakhstan who were ethnic Kazakh and, but Chinese born and crossed the border and came over um and there was a lot of rumors going around um uh, i haven't i've heard a lot of these rumors that you know perhaps you know the knb kazakh intelligence or perhaps you know people work from the chinese embassy or chinese security services were you know finding ways to try and bring some of those people back to china or excuses to to you know, extradite them or deport them or something like that um so far all of that seems to be rumor 
Um, I haven't been able to confirm anything. I've talked to a lot of people involved in that community. Um, nobody's been able to to offer me concrete proof besides just, you know, maybe they heard from someone else or, you know, it's been posted in a WhatsApp group that, you know, the, the Oralman community in Kazakhstan all seems to share together. Um, so, so far on that front, I think that there is there isn't any news, although obviously it's it's very much on on everybody's minds. Um, and then in terms of, you know, what's the, the fallout of the CSEO intervention and how it affects things? I mean, Bruce, if your microphone works, I'd love to hear what you think. Can you give us a try again? Can you hear me now? We can. Success. Okay, Bruce. Please. Holy cow, uh, man. We're, we're, we're dying to hear what's on your mind. So please, um, you know, I believe the question was... Um, you know, what, what do you think of this, this, this fallout of the, the CSTO intervention? I think especially how is it seen, I think, for on a lot of people's minds within Kazakhstan and, you know, what are maybe some of the broader implications? Well, you're fortunate you didn't hear some of the language I was using in the last 10 or 15 minutes. But anyway, um, you know, obviously the fact that, that Kazakhstan had to resort to asking for help from outside. And, you know, and let's face it, as the situation is, is finally becoming a little bit clearer here, you know, from, from minute one, there was a small amount of troops, you know, 2,500, 3,000 troops wasn't going to tip the scale in a, in a massive revolt or, or a terrorist attack or something like that. So it seems like everyone was in on this from the beginning. Still, um, you know, the fact that they had to bring these people in, it shows uh, that Kazakh authorities had to turn to the outside, turn out, uh, outside the country for help. It's not going to uh, do any good for the image of, of uh, Kasim Jomar Tokayev going on, you know, uh, going on as he tries to solidify power that they had to resort to calling the Kremlin in to get a little help. I mean, it's a short term mission without a doubt. But, you know, the facts seem to show now that there really wasn't any need for this to begin with. Um, and it's going to hurt Takayev's credibility going on, going forward. You know, that said, of course, there's another side about what does this mean for the CSTO? Uh, you know, are, they, are we going to see this again if member states have problems? Um, hard to say. Uh, you know, most member states don't share a 7,000-kilometer-long border with Russia, so uh, maybe not. But but as far as Kazakh politics go, I, I you know, I've heard nothing but bad things from the people of Kazakhstan about having to bring in Russian troops, and I can't believe that um, that uh, people are going to ever look at, at President Takayev the same way again in Kazakhstan. Right. Um Thanks, Bruce. I'm glad that you were, were finally able to get uh, get you to weigh in here. Um, okay, um, Ajaz, I hope that that answers your question. Um, we're gonna yeah, yeah, forward. but yeah, can I speak a little bit more? Uh, if you have a really quick question, otherwise, I want to be able to get yeah, some other people in. Yeah, here, yeah. So. Do you do you do you have a question? You said that there are no there are rumors that Kazakh Uyghurs are being extradited extradited or detained to China, but there is a report. I have used that report in one of my long farms that was compiled by Edward Lemon and others that some have been extracted or detained, especially Uyghurs, in Kazakhstan and sent back to China. Sure, sure. Know... Yeah, yeah, definitely uh, Uyghurs have. But I, I mean, in terms of ethnic Kazakhs, I think it's always been a different situation whether somebody's ethnically that, that Uyghur or but, ethnically Kazakh. Yeah. But when we see the whole of greater Central Asia, we are we see the the cultural and other linguistic similarities that bind the Central Asian people as a group. For example, till 
till soviet till soviet union became became visible uh, i'm really sorry to have to cut you off i know but i know you have a lot to say but there's a lot of other people who want to get questions okay 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 thank you thank you thank you thank you thanks very much i'll try if we have time we'll come back to it okay okay thank you um okay so i think believe our next question is coming from andre novak um so hopefully he can get brought up here and then we can turn the floor over to you andre uh curious to hear what you have to say um let's see Andre, are you here? Yes, I see Andre coming up. Hi, Andre. Please introduce yourself and let us know uh, what what you want to. Ask. Yes, my name is uh, Andre Novak. I'm a political consultant from Germany, and um, I want to um, look at uh, at an interpretation of of what's been happening um, based on uh, the global kind of conflict between liberal democracies and uh, and authoritarian regimes and it's uh, been it's become obvious that um the um the regime in, in Kazakhstan be- was became nervous to lose control and uh, and despite conflicts maybe between different elite groups both from Kazakhstan and Russia um i think the fact remains that um that there was real popular um a sort of discontent uh, and 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 very quickly materializing mass demonstrations and um and interesting thing is uh, compared to Belarus or Ukraine the Maidan uh, things escalated very quickly to something that looked on on the streets and they produced pictures uh, which which looked like um, the the final days of Maidan or even civil war, and uh, the interesting thing is that uh, perhaps uh, perhaps the authoritarian regimes have been um, you know learning the lesson not to let any popular um, protest form properly and not to have them you know develop leaders and to get their narratives and their messages and their demands out and. In in this case, uh, it happened all happened so fast um, that, uh, that 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 this was successfully uh, basically done. Uh, and uh, okay, so so Andre, what what is what exactly is your question? Well, um, my question is if um, you know if you know if that's if if this can be explained, um, you know the speed okay. of, of of how things happen can be explained by the re- by the real yeah. events that happened. Or uh, by an agenda from elites who wanted to shut it down quickly. Sure. Okay. Um, Alimina, maybe uh, do you want to jump in here? Um, we can give a, a quick reply to Andre. Sure. So, um, just the, from the beginning of this question, I started to think about the power transition that happened in 2019, right? Because a lot of people in this power transition that Nadarbayev have crafted as a successful one, and people were saying, oh, maybe the autocrats of the world should have this as an example of how you can power transition without big conflicts. And actually, for a long time, a lot of Russian political scientists, they were coming, they were, they were looking at the Kazakh scenario, as they call it, as a successful one. And they were even thinking if the if Putin will actually take that lead uh, also and follow Nazarbayev's steps. But now the opinions are changing because now we can see very brutal kind of uh, shift in terms of how people are perceiving Nazarbayev and saying like he should go away. And now we can see that statues being crumbled down. Actually, the capital of the country, uh, 
formerly Aslan and Nandur Sultan. In the media, it was said that it was only referred to as capital, but not Nur Sultan. So even uh, the state media is trying to be careful with that. So then it brings a question if that if that model of uh, authoritarian power transition, even if they, you try hard, like Lukashenko, for example, he just stayed in power, just stayed himself. In otherwise case, you try to, to you try to uh, go away peacefully, sort of, but put another person so it all looks clean. But then, in in any case, in any case, it just leads to people being discon- people being unhappy, and then this kind of situation gets uh, it, it makes the country go through this uh, incredible trauma and crisis. Another thing, just to compare. For example, what happened in Belarus and Ukraine, you can see there it's very that the message of the protesters, it was very clear. So you knew what they wanted. You knew exactly what the government wanted. And the protests, the power dynamic between them and what they wanted and what they what they wanted to get out of it, it was pretty clear to everyone. Whilst in Kazakhstan, it is not. And just coming back to the previous question regarding the people from uh, the Xinjiang and all the protests regarding China, it's just another group of uh, Kazakhs who are not happy with what the government is doing, right? So when the protests first started over the oil price, after that, why it spread it so fast is just because there are so many topics that been just brewing up for decades in Kazakhstan. And when people felt like, oh, they can go out and actually protest and express uh, their their feelings about the government, um, that's when all the groups started to show up on the streets. And that's why there's no clear leadership. That's why there's no clear agenda of like what the protester, protesters uh, wanted. And there's so many different groups uh, that just have all different agendas of what they wanted. And we write that right. about that with the Roshan and Artsko, all the different topics that just been causing the discontent. Right, right. Roshan, you wanted to jump in here really quickly. Uh, if you can add something and then we'll turn it over to the next question. Um, yeah, just to piggyback basically on what um, Alemana has said. Um, yeah, it's important to remember that in Kazakhstan, there are like multiple fractions of people that got to the protest and uh, the protest and the demands associated with uh, like public dissents, uh, dissent were different in different regions. If in the West, we could largely see peaceful protests uh, with no looting, um, uh, where people demanded, um, you know, just socioeconomic reforms. Somewhere in Almaty, we could also see that people there, some of them, some of the groups demanded more of um, political political reforms. And obviously there were some um, some people that unfortunately use it for destructive purposes. Um, and the, the current regime portrayed all of the peaceful protesters as those destructive forces. Because let's be real, it's impossible that 20,000 terrorists could operate in one city um, in a lot Right, I mean, it's a pretty pretty ludicrous <laughs> claim, actually. Um, yeah, <laughs> fair point, fair point. Um, okay, I think we have another question coming in here uh, from Sean Roberts, um, who I believe I know who Sean Roberts is, but uh, maybe I'll let uh, him, let him introduce himself. Uh, Sean, are you here? Uh, could you please uh, uh, let us know? Is your mic working, Sean? Uh, I, I believe so. Can you hear me? 
Yeah, we can hear you well. Okay, so uh, Sean, uh, could you introduce yourself to everybody and then uh, you know let us know uh, what's on your mind? Sure. Um, my name is Sean Roberts. I'm a director of the International Development Studies Program at the George Washington uh, University in Washington, D.C. Uh, I had two quick questions, um, although the answers might be quite long. The first one is, you know, for, for quite some time, the kind of analysts in Kazakhstan have tried to diagnose kind of uh, patronage structures. And I'm wondering if, if this event has given us any clarity on some of the players behind the scenes. Uh, people like Bolat Utamuratov. Um, where have these people ended up? People who were kind of characterized as great cardinals behind the scenes. <clears throat> and then my other question <clears throat> kind of piggybacks on what a lot of people have been asking about um, in terms of the relationship with China. Uh, is there any indication that um, going forward, the state might have different attitudes towards the situation of particularly ethnic Kazakhs in China um, and whether there's um, any indication that Kazakh nationalist uh, leaning politicians or activists really more um, uh, have gained any sort of um, increased voice out of this situation. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Um, Bruce, do you want to handle that first part? Um, and, I'm, and I'm curious your thoughts on the China stuff. And then uh, I, I'd like to, to jump in and handle the China thing. But please, please jump in and go first. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, considering the first part, which uh, that, that has always been something I've, I've been wondering about for years now is what's going to happen if there is a power play in Kazakhstan, because the business elite is is as powerful and possibly more powerful than the much of the political elite. So this was going to be something that we're going to have to work out. Now, one imagines at the moment that all kinds of deals are being made. You know, it, it'll look real bad if you if you have a call of the business community in Kazakhstan and you, you knock out a bunch of CEOs. It's real bad for investment. So surely there's there's some kind of deals being made if you get to keep this amount, but you're going to have to give up this amount or something, uh, you know, but, but then again, this, this is going to raise some questionable, uh, some problems about loyalties here. You know, these guys are switching from Nazarbayev over to the Takayev side and everything. Um, but these are powerful players and you can't, you can't exclude them because they have a lot of money. And we know about the paper crowds in central Asia. I mean, this is nothing new. So, uh, you know, you don't want these people roaming around loose, even if they're outside the country and funding protests, uh, you know, and, and demonstrations inside Kazakhstan. So you're going to have to come to some kind of agreement with them. Um, now, as, as far as China goes, you know, the, the, the problem is going to be for the Kazakh authorities is that this is a, this is really a people's kind of movement here. Um, you can't, to you, you can try to ignore this like they've been doing all you want, but, but it's the people who are demanding that the government take a stance, uh, you know, against what China is doing out there. And the government's trying to has been trying to keep this muted as much as possible. I don't see that that's going to change because of the change in um, in leadership, uh, or, or at least who's clearly in power now. So that's something that, that even Takayev and the administration he puts together is going to have to deal with. You can't 
turn that off. Just shut that off. It won't happen. Right. Yeah. And uh, to jump in on the China stuff, Sean, I mean, my, my reading of things would be one, there's going to be even less, you know, tolerance of public dissent than there has been in the past. You know, I think what we've seen before, you know, there's kind of been, there was this, this window that I think was quite open, you know, kind of late 2018 into 2019 before, before maybe a, a crackdown that happened then in the middle of that year against, you know, activism that had been happening around, you know, especially with ethnic Chinese-born ethnic Kazakhs and everything happening in Xinjiang. Um, but that's, that was been, that's slowly eroded. That's been cut down even before everything that happened in the last few weeks. Um, and then, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, there's been these small protests happening outside the, you know, the Chinese consulate in, in Almaty and, you know, maybe popping up somewhere else. But I would think there's going to be even less tolerance of any form of dissent against the government. And I think in general, you know, as much as, say, I think Russia is maybe the, the kind of outside winner or maybe actually just the general winner, if there is said to be a winner from what's happened in Kazakhstan through this crisis. You know, I think, you know, China, the, the Kazakh government is going to need Chinese money, perhaps more than it has in the past, actually. Um, I think it's going to probably be harder to get money to come from the West. Russia doesn't really have it. China, I think, is in that big position. And, you know, anything, um, you know, obviously tolerating Xinjiang activism, you know, letting people like that have a louder platform, you know, a bigger voice. I think that, you know, that's the kind of thing that China doesn't like and doesn't want. Um, so I would, um, you know, maybe expect, you know, even less of that and for things to probably get worse for a lot of those activists who, who operate on China stuff within Kazakhstan. Um, I, I hope that answers your question. I don't know if you have a quick follow-up. Um, I think we yeah. can probably take it too. Thanks, thanks. A quick follow-up's actually on the uh, power configuration question. Is there any indication that any of these important business interests in the background were involved in um, uh, the events in Wednesday into Thursday? in terms of the clashes on the street. Um, Bruce, do you want to jump in there? Or also, if Rashan, Alimina, I don't know if either of you uh, have any thoughts. Maybe you can jump in after Bruce uh, if you want to. Well, I just mentioned that somebody got people out into the street. You know, I mean, there was there was two different kinds of protests going on. There was the legitimate peaceful protesters that were already out there for days. And then, and then there was this other group that showed up and, and really kicked off all the violence. Now, who, who was it that put those people up to that? You know, we all have theories about that and you can make a lot of connections. Um, but, you know, so certainly I, I would say that they were those business interests were at work on some level uh, already. And, and like I said, there's, um, you know, they're going to be. This is something that the uh, Takayev and his group is going to they're going to have to come to some compromise with some of these people, um, e possibly even some of the people that were involved in, in letting loose the unrest. But, um, you know, certainly, like I said, somebody seemed to to have been able to convince people to go out on the street and, and manage to get them weapons um, so that they could go out and create all kinds of chaos. Uh, Alimana, I know you wanted to jump in and add one more thing here. Yeah, so regarding that, I just think because we don't really have clear information of what happened and also the internet was not working for um, anyone in Kazakhstan for most of those days when things got really intense it's really hard to know what actually happened and also like now there are a lot of sort of like conspiracy theories and uh in how people would want to interpret that and how 
they see the potential links. So there's one that is like it's connected to the clan and Nazarbayev's like nephews fighting for the city as like one of them has Almaty as his fiefdom and he was just trying to like desperately protect Almaty by using his forces. But it's just like another story that might be made up, might not be made up. We will probably never know. Uh, but I think it's also important to highlight that Almaty is a, a big city. Uh, Almaty is uh, the biggest city also in terms of the economy, and that's why a lot of people come there. And also Almaty is located in the south of Kazakhstan, where most of the uh, sort of like economically deprivated region uh, like the regions of Kazakhstan are uh, whereas there are a lot of population and a lot of unemployment and that's why mostly young male they go there to work and perhaps would be natural thing to see is that those people are marginalized they don't have good paying jobs they're not having a decent uh, like way of life and they feel they feel uh, betrayed by their government and so when the chaos kind of started, the anarchy started, perhaps these people also felt like they uh, they have a right to loot because uh, they're, they can see how, how rich and powerful and how much money uh, Nazarbayev's clan has and how the government in general has. So... Yeah, it's hard to explain, but maybe maybe we will know, maybe we will never know what was behind it. But there's a lot of like sort of questions, like why, for example, the main intelligence uh, building was not really protected and why they got hold of the weapons. But yeah. Right. Thanks, Alimina. Um, and Sean, I hope, uh, thanks for your question. Uh, we're going to turn the floor over now to uh, Diora. Uh, Diora, can you please introduce yourself and let us know uh, what you want to know? Hi, sure. Can you hear me? We can, yeah. Great. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Diora and I'm currently based in London. I am from Uzbekistan, but my family had lived in Kazakhstan actually for five years and they've just recently moved. So I'd been to Almaty quite um, a lot. And so I know the city pretty well. And we also have, you know, people that we know who are, are currently there. Um, so obviously, in the last week, I've been you know kind of stuck to my screen and just seeing the rolling updates from people on the ground specifically Kazakh journalists um, and of course I think as everyone here was watching everything unfold I, I was just shocked at the scale of everything and how quickly it all, all unfolded and um, if I'm honest you know it's it's really uh, amazing to see so many people you know, come out into the streets. And as someone who goes to a lot of protests in London, um, I felt like, you know, there was like a lot of solidarity that I felt for the people who were out there and trying to fight for their rights and, and fight for equality. Um, now, of course, a week later, what we're seeing is this distinctive um, narrative developing that is dividing sort of the general protesters and these mysterious armed men as Bruce has just mentioned um, and I'm just I'm a bit concerned really and also I just would love if anyone could provide some clarity on who these people are and I know that we've just said we don't know who they are really um, I guess I'm a little bit concerned about this sort of good protester narrative and bad protester narrative and having been to you know protests even in the UK you can see how something that is peaceful starts off peaceful and then if there's like you know a bit of pushback and resistance from say the police then things can escalate to violence pretty quickly and it doesn't mean that 
people who were armed specifically. Now, from some of the people that um, we know from the country, they're saying that they literally saw this with their own eyes. So I guess I'm just, you know, being here in London and again, because the internet is very intermittent and I don't really know how much the information that's already out there, even now that's being put out there, is being filtered. I would just love some, I guess, more conversation on that and just, yeah, a bit of clarity around these quote-unquote bad protesters. Right, right. Okay, thanks a lot, Yora. Thanks for your question. Um, Bruce, maybe do you, do you want to jump in first and then maybe we could go, go around the horn, go around the horn with everyone else afterwards, but let's hear from you. Yeah, well, you know, of course, you're, you're quite right to point out that, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's too easy to just say there was two groups of, of protesters, um, you know, in a, in a in an emotionally charged environment. And I've been in places where this has happened before. It doesn't take much to set things off. You know, you can get one a protest that's still in control and kind of peaceful and, and a scuffle with police or something like that can turn it into something totally different. There, there's no doubt about it. And, and a lot of people know that. So it's easy to to turn the turn a peaceful protest into a violent demonstration and unrest really quick that way. Um, you know, it would, the, the answer is that we won't, you know, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of things going on here. There was, there seems to have been a group that was out to really cause trouble and, and start some kind of violence and, and looting and things like that, you know, and, and I saw that, uh, you know, Evgeny Joftis had said that, that the looters were probably actually just people from out of town. Whereas the people with guns were somebody that was like brought in. So, here, you know, here's two different groups that are added to the peaceful protesters. So, um, you know, but that said, you're right. Uh okay, I'm not sure if that is me that cut out or if that's Bruce that cut out. I can't um, hear either. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, um, Bruce, I think we lost you there for a little bit. But maybe, uh, Rashan, can you, I, I mean, do you mind uh, picking up there? I'm curious to hear hear your thoughts on this. Um, sure. Um, I think a lot of people um, not in Kazakhstan, even in Kazakhstan, are confused about the who the average protester is. Um, unfortunately, the current narrative is portrays all protesters in a highly negative light. But um, again, as um, Alman and ha as Bruce have mentioned, um, there is lack of like substantive evidence on who, who was involved, who got out there. Um, and now I think it's important for all of us to sort of gather as much information from eyewitnesses as much as possible. And we currently, um, luckily the internet is uh, currently stabilizing in Kazakhstan and we could see a bunch of um, stories on social media about how um, how there were a lot of organized crime groups um, where um, people were basically trying to um, harm harm peaceful protesters um, and then there are some people who did decide to loot but um, unfortunately as, as with the, everything there is a lack of information. Right. Um, Alemanda, do you have anything um, you want to add on here? I think pretty much Roshan um, 
brilliantly summed it up. So I don't really have anything more to add. But I hope that we'll have more information now. People are starting to write about it, actually from Kazakhstan and I, uh, the eyewitnesses and from Almaty. Maybe we'll get more clear picture. But for now, it's just what we think happened and what kind of suggestions we can make from just like uh, the facts that we know about the country. Right, of course. I mean, obviously, I mean, it's so difficult to to just figure out. And I think, you know, especially with the internet blackout, uh, you know, we're just really picking up the pieces now. And, you know, the fact that there were very few people on the ground documenting as, as all of this was unfolding, I think it's, there's a lot of blank spots for everybody. Um, so I think that that's where we're going to end things here. Um, I want to thank everybody uh, for coming and listening in. Also, thank all my guests. Um, thank you guys for, for your time and also for your, for your thoughts. Um, thanks again, everybody, for, for tuning in. Um, you know, please follow uh, Radio for Europe. Um, you know, we have a lot of coverage on Kazakhstan, and we will continue to have it in the future. Um, and uh, please uh, you know, tune in to um, you know, our future Twitter Spaces um, discussions. We'll be doing this more and more. And sorry if we didn't have time to you know, answer your question today, um, but hopefully it's something we can get into the future. Um, also, if there is something that's really burning on your mind, uh, you know, my messages are open on Twitter, so you know, feel free to ask me and maybe this is something you know, uh, can answer on Twitter or you know, um, answer in a future newsletter or article or something like that. So don't be shy about reaching out. And uh, thanks again, everybody. And we will talk to you later. Um, we're all signing off now. <laughs>